Thanks, guys. Hey, what a great morning. You know, we're going to finish the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6 this morning. And, uh, of course, always excited. You know that. You know that about me. I'm always excited about uh, talking about Jesus, especially the direct red-letter word teaching of Jesus, which, which is what we've been going through the last few weeks. Uh, I also want to thank Bob Thompson and our morning mix guys, Randy and Paul and all that. I hope you're enjoying the morning mix, giving you a little bit more uh, insight as to what was, what's going on with Church of the Red Door. But anyway, this is uh, an exciting time. Uh, we think we're getting really close. We think we have potentially a place that we can meet here in the, in the next uh, month or so. We're very excited about that. We continue to pursue a lot of different options. And um, so anyway, you ready for this? Let me just open us in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your instruction to us. Thank you for giving us meaning and purpose. And, and Lord, uh, you really give us insight into why we're created. And so help us this morning. Help me, Lord, speak through me. I, that people don't want to hear from me. They want to hear from you. So help us do that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you ready? We're going to start here in verse 39 and Luke 6, and we're going to read, go ahead and finish the Sermon on the Plain. Now, just as a little recap, this is a teaching. Some think this is maybe just an excerpt from the Sermon on the Mount. Others, I kind of happen to be in the second camp, think this was a, probably a shortened teaching that was similar to the Sermon on the Mount uh, that we get uh, in Matthew 5, 6, 7 in there. So what's important is that we get this condensed view, uh, this teaching of Jesus, and we try to, again, assimilate it. How do we assimilate it? How, how do you even deal with some of these? This is tough. I mean, you know, one of the reasons that I go line by line, verse by verse, and we've gone through the books of Ephesians and different books through the years at, here at Church at the Red Door, and eventually I like to say, hey, we've gone through kind of everything, you know, line by line. It's difficult. It's challenging. But one of the things is that it keeps me balanced. Uh, it's very easy for me to get an idea about what Jesus taught or what Christian, the Christian walk looks like and begin to superimpose my ideas and then draw things from what Jesus said and the Apostle Paul and prophets and other things and use those in support of an idea that I may have. When I'm forced into going line by line, verse by verse, it is a protection not only for me as a teacher, but also for you to know that I'm getting this directly from the king and the creator of the cosmos. I'm getting a balanced view of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. All right. So that's why we're doing it. Are you ready? Verse 39. Okay, here we go. 39 through 49. And Jesus also spoke a parable to them. A parable, again, is something that comes alongside an unseen reality to give clarity to it. It, it comes alongside and explains it in a deeper and more profound way than what maybe we would even be able to understand. He says a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Jesus asked rhetorically. Will they not both fall into a pit? Now, Jesus is going to use a, a bunch of kind of funny language and funny pictures. Now, people wouldn't think that Jesus, Jesus they always imagine Jesus teaching kind of dour and very serious. Well, trust me, it's serious. I mean, everything Jesus says is poignant and, and noticeable and remarkable and gives us deep insight into, again, why we were, were created. So, yes, it's important, but he throws in a lot of humor along the way, whether 
you are aware of it or not. So get the picture. Jesus is trying to create a picture in their mind. And so you have a guy, you know, a blind man, and he maybe has his little, you know, stick out and he's walking along. And then there's another blind guy behind him, following him, maybe hanging onto his coattail, thinking this guy's going to lead me and, you know, get me to a food or a place of safety or something. And, and it, you can see kind of the ridiculous nature of a blind man leading another blind man. And he said, hey, if that happens, they're both going to, the first blind guy's going to fall into a pit and the guy's going to tumble in right after him. So get the picture in your mind that Jesus is trying to create. A pupil, verse 40, is not above his teacher. But everyone, after he has been fully trained, we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. After he's been fully trained, is going to be like his teacher. Jesus, he could not be more clear. You have a teacher and you have a pupil. The pupil's fully trained. The pupil becomes like the teacher, given the fact that the teacher's walking out, practicing what he's preaching, practicing what he's teaching. And of course, Jesus was the teacher, as we see uh, that Jesus even describes himself as a teacher in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. So it's clear. Jesus is saying, look, you've got to be a disciple. Listen, and then you become like me. This is the very purpose for why we're down here. As followers of Jesus, we're being conformed to his image, as Paul was very clear in his letter to the Romans. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? Now he's going to use another humorous picture. Why are you looking at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Now, some translations, it really there is a, a plank. Uh, think of it as a two by four. Okay, imagine, get the picture. Imagine a guy with a two by four sticking out of his eye and then he's over there and he's trying to, with a, lot, with a plank, a two by four in his eye, trying to be over there and pick out a tiny speck that is in his, his neighbor's eye. I mean, Jesus really is giving us some very humorous language here. And he says in verse 42, or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out that speck that is in your own eye and when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. How does that happen? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Take this two by four out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Okay, so now we've got, and again, that was the title of my message this morning, blind finger pointers, eye logs, eye planks, and then Sandy lies, and we'll get to that in a second. So, verse 43, for there is no good tree which produces bad fruit. Now, you know, Jesus seems to be taking, you know, metaphor, and then he moves from this to this to this, you know. I mean, it's just a very strange thing. You got blind guys leading blind guys. You got two by fours out of people's eyes trying to, you know, do surgery on somebody else's eyes. And now, and now you get this good tree, bad tree kind of thing going on here. On the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Men don't gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The, man, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills 
the heart. Now, Proverbs 27, 9, 2, he says, As face reflects face in water, so the heart of man reflects the man. In other words, you know what a man's like? Look at his heart. The heart is, again, the seedbed of passion, desire, volitional will, all those things. Eventually, then, Jesus would later teach, out of that abundance, the mouth will begin to speak. You want to know what somebody's like, what somebody's heart's really like, what the center of their personhood is, what it's directed towards, what it looks like. We'll just look at what's coming out. Fruit, language, talk, everything spills out of the mouth. Jesus in elsewhere would say, what you eat doesn't defile a man. It's eliminated out of the body. You eat it. And they were always concerned about dietary laws. He said, no, no, no. It's what comes out of the heart of man. That's what defiles the man. So when we're covetous, when we're covetous, when we're, you know, uh, all these evil desires, this idolatry, all the, all the breaking of the Ten Commandments, uh, well, that begins to come out of us in our motivations and anger and, and abusive language and factions and strife and all the manifestations of a flesh-driven heart scenario. And that's what we get here and Jesus is teaching. Now, verse 46, we're going to come back here a little bit, but I, I just want to kind of get this out. So this, again, Jesus does this just boom, boom, boom. This kind of this, uh, the string of beads, if you will, as rabbis would call it, just wham, wham, wham. We see that over and over. Now, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock and when the flood occurred, when the flood occurred, they, they will occur in all of our lives. And the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because, well, it had been well built. What does it mean to have a well-built life? We're going to look at that this morning. But one who has heard and has not acted accordingly, this is, this requires our participation. Jesus is very clear. One who has heard we're hearing the teachings of Jesus this morning, and then are we acting accordingly? It's like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. Excuse me, has not acted accordingly. It's like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the torrent burst against it and immediately collapses, and the ruin of that house was great. Thus ends the teaching on the plain, the sermon on the plain. There's a few things that obviously jump out. I've already chronicled a number of them, but we get this, these, these just categories immediately, blind guides and hypocrites and people who are always blaming others and thinks that they have all the truth and they're always trying to pick the speck out of somebody else's eye, judgmentalism. We've got fruit and trees and what's producing and what's coming out of the heart. And then finally, this picture of this foundation what is your life built upon? And what does it mean to build? Well, we, I think as a follower of Jesus, I can say, I want to build my life on the foundation of Jesus. Well, we know that to be true. But what practically does that mean? What does it mean to build your life on Jesus? So I get a few things. Don't follow blind men. I mean, that's one thing that we should be getting. We should be following the one that can see perfectly. And of course, his name is Jesus. And that's what we're trying to do. You're not following me. You're following Jesus. Now, to some degree, you may see me following Jesus and doing it well, and then you may, as Paul said, follow me as I follow Jesus. So there are places, but there are also areas of my life that I don't want you following me. I'm still being honed. I'm still practicing, as we'll see. I, I'm working at this. 
And then the proof is in the fruit, folks. I mean, we, you, you don't know what's in your heart. Look at what's coming out of your mouth. I had a pretty nasty experience this last week. I, I was, I, I usually don't, well, sometimes I do. I'm a, I'm a fallen human being that's being restored and in Christ and, you know, I have his righteousness. I, I know all those things, but sometimes I say critical things about others. But this week I was saying incredibly critical things about me. And I'm usually my worst critic, and I was just demeaning myself, and it was horrible what was coming out of my mouth, and it just showed me the darkness of my heart in different areas again. I can't believe I had that kind of self-talk coming out about someone who's created in the image of God. In this case, it's me. I mean, that may sound uh, self-congratulatory or whatever. I don't know. I mean, I, or self-centered, I should say. But I couldn't believe the words that were coming out of my mouth. So to the degree that I'm following Christ, yes, follow me. But ultimately, we're all following or attempting to follow Jesus. And then lastly, building a real foundation that lasts isn't easy. It's difficult. It's difficult to practice what Jesus taught. In some ways, it's easy. In some ways, it's incredibly difficult. It's easy conceptually. But in practice, it's quite difficult. Okay, so... What does it really look like to follow blind men? I mean, what is the outcome? Well, blind men imagine that others are always the problem. They tend to rest in uh, what I would call protectionist idea of the world. Uh, All their battles, in other words, everything they see is through the lens of protectionism. They look at the scene realm, and as a result, they're always battling. In their hearts, they're batting politically and and they tribally we've talked about that class versus class ethnicity race religious everything and so they're always battling in the scene realm and their life is kind of a cacophony and it's very difficult as we'll see very shaky blind men by definition well they can't even see to get the speck out of their brother's eye the plank the board again this very humorous picture we get they've still got this primary issue blind their bone blindness but they perceive themselves to see and they're trying to pick the speck out and again Jesus uses this language blind men are on radically shifting sands their worlds are in some ways a hell things events on the ground are always I mean look at what's going on in the world I mean just I mean some things I love about the internet and and my iPhone and all those kinds of things some things I hate I mean I've literally thought about I can't do it it's impossible I couldn't even function in my jobs if I if I didn't have an iPhone but there are times I said I would love to just take it save my 100 bucks a month or whatever, give it back to Verizon and say, I'm, I'm done with it. It, it just, it just it comes at us so quickly, all the, the chaos in the world. And I mean, we've gone through this COVID, we've gone through one thing after another, after another, and then the, 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 the race inequities and all the different things that go on and the political strife and the sabotage and all this new cybersecurity that's happening to happen because these cyber attacks and the, the new, you know, and then North Korea and missiles. And I, it just, it can just dull your senses over time. Look, if you're always operating in the scene realm and you're trying to corral this, like corralling the wind or cats, it's impossible. You can't do that. It doesn't work. There will never be that centeredness in Christ of joy and peace and harmony, even though the storm is raging. And again, 
blind men can't see that because their foundations are built upon a religious system, a political system, or whatever. They can't build it on the teachings, the simple teachings of Jesus. Okay? So now Matthew 23, Jesus was very clear about this. Matthew 23, 15, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. In other words, this is, by the way, you can't just always look back at the scribes and Pharisees and say they were the only, you know, blind guides. Blind guides exist all over the place. They're everywhere. They're all, they're within Christendom and outside. I mean, they're blind guides leading blind people, falling into pits everywhere all the time. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, in other words, one follower of yours. And when he becomes one, you make him what? Twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Jesus, you can't say those things. I, that is so narrow. Jesus, these are men that are trying. They, they are, they're punctilious about the law. They, they try so desperately to follow the legal requirements of God. How can you say these things? That you're, they're, they're actually out making sons of hell. They're twice the sons of hell that they are. How can you say these things? Jesus always gets right to the point. Why? Because he loves his creation. Now, Jesus claimed, whether you know it or not, or you're viewing today, and you just don't understand all that I believe this, Jesus really ultimately was claiming to be the only one. And that's why God is the judge that sees clearly enough and reality as it is to be able to go down and pull either speck or plank out of our eyes. He is the seen teacher. Now, this, then he shifts and he goes into this fruit equation. Matthew 7, I'm going to quote Jesus again. He talks about the narrow and wide gates. Now, these are difficult, but let's listen to the words of Jesus. He says, enter through the narrow gate. Okay? For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. It's, there's a narrowness here. Jesus himself said, narrow gate. Some people say, no, we have to be inclusive. Everybody's included. We're all God's children and that Jesus is just came to save the entire world. And he did. But the gate to enter is narrow. These are Jesus' words. There are many that, uh, those that enter through the broad gate and it leads to destruction. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few that find it. In other words, what Jesus is already saying, he says, I realize my teachings are difficult. They're difficult to hear. They're difficult to understand. Everybody has two by fours in their eyes. They're deaf. They're, you know... I, it's very, very challenging to take in what I'm gonna tell you and help you understand the revolutionary nature of what I'm saying about how to operate as a human being on a fallen planet. You all wanna, you wanna shoot your enemies rather than pray for your enemies. These are the things that we've been learning. You don't wanna absorb a blow, you wanna inflict a blow immediately in return. And then he goes on, he says, beware of the false prophets, in other words, blind guides, if you will, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, even though they don't even understand that they are. That's why deception in religion is so perverse. It's so destructive. People see even things within Christendom and they realize and they go, that person is out for himself and they realize that that's a ravenous wolf. And Jesus even said, ravenous wolves will come in among you after I depart. Be aware. Of course, within the church, there are those that will, in some people's minds, represent the church, but in fact, they're ravenous wolves. 
Let's understand what Jesus is saying. You will know them. How do you know them? By their fruit. And this is what we're getting in this conclusion on the Sermon on the Plain right prior to the foundation is fruit. It's not that complicated. Look at people's fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce good fruit. And it's cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Going to know people, but I, I cannot tell you how often I've had to sit back because I, I, I don't want to judge people. I, the last thing I don't care about doing is judging people. I, God's the judge. I, I see, I don't see with perfect clarity at all. I mean, I see more clearly than I did five or 10 years ago, even certainly 20 years ago. But my assessments are often marred by my self-interest, by my blindedness to certain issues. I mean, I'm an imperfect assessor of people, and yet I'm called to assess people. How do I do that? And hopefully to always to bring, you know, the gospel and to bring, you know, revolution in their life and then uh, renovation of their house. I mean, I, I mean that's, that's what our task is as the church. But how do I know good from bad? And I have to look at fruit. I have to look at fruit. So are the following qualities emerging in your behavior? Are you a disciple of Jesus? And if they are, well, that's the Galatians 5 fruit. It's not that complex. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Are these beginning to flow out of you? Are they beginning to define your character? Or are you still cynical and snapping back and always have enemies, whether they be political or otherwise? Look, I know there are some really significant things happening in Western culture right now that that are very important. Maybe a move back towards, you know, Marxism and different things. Look, I, I, I don't want to underplay this. I'm just saying that the only real revolution has to start in someone's heart. And so we pray for those who persecute us. We pray for those blind guides who may be, again, as Jesus has already told us on the Sermon on the Plain, might actually be the ones that are coming against us. Are we praying for them? Well, that's all bound up in patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. It's hard to be self-controlled when you feel so passionately about the country going to the dogs or all these different kinds of things. The question is, what action does that provoke in us? Prayer, gospel penetration into unseen places, or just activism in the scene realm, which all blind guides tend to be uh, effective at anyway. There are already blind guides there. And I'm not saying being involved politically is always bad. Not at all. We, we vote, we do things. But again, the revolution has to take place on the inside. It cannot simply take place on the outside. As much as we may want to try to force it, it is a reflection. Government, policies, political, everything else, tribalism, racism, it's all a function of people's hearts when it goes off the tracks. So is, are these qualities important to carry out Jesus' commission to us as followers of his? Of course they are. So we have to build a foundation. Now the question again is, 
What is it to build? Well, we build our house on Jesus, the rock. He, we know he's the rock. The prophets had seen that there would be a rock. A, in fact, it would be a cornerstone and they would stumble over it. Israel's going to stumble over this rock. Jesus over and over. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that Jesus was the rock that the water came out of. And when they were in the wilderness being the Israelites led out by Moses, Jesus clearly is the rock. So we're building our house on Jesus. But what does that really mean? I believe in Jesus, therefore my life's built on the rock. Yes and no, that's the beginning point. But to actualize it is to do what? Is to live into his teaching. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate that. Why do you say, Lord, Lord, and yet you don't do what I say? In other words, there'll be many who will say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. But Jesus is asking the question here on the, in, in his conclusion on the Sermon on the Plain, why do you call me Lord and yet you don't practice, you don't do what I'm telling you to do? You don't follow my teaching. So what have we learned about Jesus' teaching just here on the Sermon on the Plain? Well, we've talked about absorption is part of this strong foundation. We, we absorb blows, we don't inflict blows. Giving and generosity of time and treasure and talent is part of a loving and foundation built on a solid rock. Even being hated and taken advantage of is actually paradoxically part of a solid foundation. It's going to happen. Praying then for those who are persecuting us, praying for our enemies and seeking their highest good is always part of building your life on the rock. On Jesus. You can't just say Jesus. You've got to say the teachings of Jesus. That's what Jesus is communicating to us. Don't just call me Lord and then not do what I tell you to do. So practice these things. And so I think as we can understand, you say, well, I don't know how this is gonna work. It doesn't seem strong. It seems like a weak foundation. Praying for your enemies. Aren't we just gonna get run over in a culture? Isn't, aren't we just gonna get wiped out if we build our, that sounds like a sand to me. Absorption, praying for enemies and weak and giving our stuff away and our time and being persecuted and hated. That sounds like a sandy lie here, to use a golf term, right? I mean, I, I don't want to be in the sand. I want to be out on the beautifully manicured fairway where I can hit a nice quality shot. No, it sounds weak, but here's the paradox. Jesus actually conquered the very forces of darkness through weakness. I was just thinking this week, what are some of the aspects of Jesus' life that signify that to build your life on the real rock, on a solid foundation that has deep roots here and will weather any storm, and yet it appears so incredibly weak. Think about it. He was born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth. I mean, it's little podunk, nowhere kind of places. And Nazareth was despised because it was in the north and you know, what good thing can come out of Nazareth? Some of the disciples, one of the disciples would ask. Nazareth? It's a weak place. It's an, it's an unimportant place. He wasn't born into wealth or power. Not only was he raised in these places, he wasn't even born into wealth or power. He was told by his father to pick the weakest partners, as we've seen here in the Gospel of Luke to become his protégés, the weakest, the tax collectors and the fishermen. I mean, weak, check, weak, weak, weak. This is not a strong foundation. And yet in the kingdom, it seems to be. 
He hung out with sinners and ne'er-thee-wells and, you know, nobodies. And he suffered insult after insult after insult and was hated, eventually went to the cross, and yet he kept his mouth closed. Isaiah 53 had seen this 700 years. Isaiah had seen this over 700 years before the time of Jesus. Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted and he didn't even open his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he didn't even open his mouth. Weak, 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 weak. And then Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, strong, 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 strong. Practice these things. Do these things. Jesus perfectly modeled this revolutionary lifestyle. He perfectly modeled it. He showed us how to be human. He showed us that what the world says are winners. Sometimes, and again, it's not to suggest that all these are not uh, kingdom people. You can be a, a winner in life and still be a follower of Jesus. But the world looks at, you know, winners and the wealthy, the beautiful, the educated, the famous, the self-assured. And Jesus is saying, no, we're going to go this direction. Here's what the kingdom, you want to build your life on the foundation that's a rock? Here's what it's going to look like. You want to have this kind of fruit popping out of you everywhere, this long suffering and gentleness and kindness and goodness and joy. You want that? It's going to require you to live into the teachings of Jesus. Did you ever imagine this was going to be an easy road? Following Jesus, that is? That there was going to be no cross? I mean, Jesus would never give you any indication. Now, there may be teachers out there. And again, as I said at the beginning of this message, I, I, I am forcing balance on myself to go line by line and verse by verse so that I don't construct another kind of Jesus that doesn't even really exist. Jesus could have been more clear. Listen, Matthew 10, 24. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough that the disciple become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they've called the head of the house, talking about himself, Beelzebul, How much more will they malign the members of his own household? Of course, they're going to talk bad about you. They're going to talk smack about you. Of course, it's going to happen. You're going to be persecuted, hated. That's what he's talking about here again on the Sermon on the Plain. Therefore, don't fear them. There's nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, you go out and speak it in the light. I mean, you can't see it here in my office, but there's a massive light here. I don't know. It's four feet by four feet and a light over here and light over here and light over here. And and I'm thinking, I need all the help I can get, right? But shine the light on it. What I'm telling you in the darkness, you go out and speak it in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim it on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. That's sovereignty of God. Why are you freaking out? But the very hairs of your head are numbered, so do not fear. You are much more valuable than many, many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring, I came to bring a sword. Jesus, you can't say this stuff. You know, that's one of the things about our culture, folks. 
they don't know this Jesus. They don't, this is the biblical Jesus. This is the biblical Jesus. You have to understand this. This is so radical. Now, this was already happening in the first century church. Listen to Paul's admonition to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 11.4. If one comes and preaches another Jesus, a non-biblical Jesus, an unreal, fake, false, uh, contrived, idle Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you have received, or you receive a different spirit that you've not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Of course, ravenous wolves are gonna come in. They're not all gonna say, Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Jesus is the terrible, terrible guy. He had no idea. They might even say, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. And then Jesus would say, but why are you not doing what I told you to do? You call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say. This is confounding. How do you even know you're saved then? You know. I, I, I really was drawn to this uh, understanding as we close here this morning. R.C. Sproul, who's now passed away. Oh, by the way, I was a big golfer. Uh, used to, was a member at a club, and he would take, he would prepare all of his messages, and he would go and sit at his country club and sit in there. Now, why did he do that? He would leave his office, take his Bible and his books and his stuff, and he would prepare messages and talks and things like that at his club so people could see. Oh, there's Sproul again. There's the crazy guy. But, you know, uh, after he passed, there were many men who began to talk. It was a very compelling thing for me, especially our involvement with links and other things uh, about the fact that men had come and said, well, maybe it's not. And they would sit down and have a conversation or something. He went out among them. You know, I, I'm telling you, if you expect me as your senior pastor to sit in an office all day and just do religious things, I want to be out. I, I am a missionary at heart. I want to be among people who don't yet know Jesus, don't even know what he taught. I mean, I, I want to, he speaks things to me in a dark place. I want to go up on a housetop out where it's light and I want to scream it from the housetops. I can't do that in an office. And I love that about Sproul, but Sproul talked about how do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you're one of these people? I mean, Jesus, obviously, fruit is certainly an indication and, and all these, but listen to this. It's a simple little thing. He says, here's what I do with people. I ask him three questions. How do you know that you're saved? I ask him three questions. Number one, do you love the biblical Jesus perfectly? Number one. The bit. Now, I love how he states it. Do you love the biblical Jesus? Not just Jesus has been, because everybody say, do you love Jesus? Do you like Jesus? Oh yeah, Jesus is an interesting guy, good moral teacher, whatever. No, do you love the biblical Jesus perfectly? And he said, I only had one person my whole life ever say, I love the biblical Jesus perfectly. He said, but most of us go, I, you know, I want to, but I know I don't love the biblical Jesus perfectly. I mean, my life would, well, it'd probably look different than it looks if I was able to love him perfectly. He says, well, then the second question, do you love the biblical Jesus as you should? And most people still, as I should. Do I love him perfectly? No. Do I love him as I should? <sighs> well, I'd like to, but, you know, I don't know that I do. I would be perfectly? No. As I should? Uh, no. I mean, Sproul, what are you doing to me? You're, am I not even saved? But then, then Sproul asked the third question. Do you have any affection, any affection for the biblical Jesus? Now, there's a Jesus that's been constructed in our culture 
that some people say, oh, yeah, Jesus, I, I'm cool with Jesus, but not the biblical Jesus. So when we're going through the Sermon on the Plain, we are getting a real taste of the biblical Jesus and then the corresponding things. I mean, you're, you're going to make somebody twice the son of hell as you are. I mean, that's harsh. That is, but that's the biblical Jesus. It's harsh to say that it's a narrow way and few who find it. That Jesus, that's a little hard. That's the biblical Jesus. Many say to me, Lord, Lord, we've cast out demons in your name and done miracles in your name. And I'm going to say to them, depart from me for I never knew you. That's the biblical Jesus. Those are the teachings. You want to build your life on the foundation of the biblical Jesus, not a constructed Jesus, fabricated Jesus, another Jesus, a false Jesus, a false gospel, a different spirit that departs from the apostolic knowledge of the true biblical Jesus. So that's the question R.C. would ask. And I'd say, you know what, R.C., I do have an affection for the biblical Jesus. Now, R.C., and I don't have to get into these theological terms, was very reformed in his thinking, and he, he believed in the absolute selection, election. And look, you can't say you don't believe in the election of uh, uh, being chosen by God. You can't say you don't believe in it because it's all over the Bible. But there's, you know, and we've talked about this. I don't want to get into this issue of your choice versus God's choice and all that, but clearly the Bible teaches election. So if you have an affection for the biblical Jesus, the Jesus we've been talking about this last few weeks, then you can say, well, then I know that there's been some kind of massive thing that's happened in my heart. There's no way I could have an affection for the biblical Jesus without a spiritual revolution having taken place, a born-again experience. I can't have an affection for the biblical Jesus. I can have an affection for the non-biblical, fake, false, cultural Jesus. But for the biblical Jesus, I have an affection, and then you would say, I know that if that's occurred, then I've been chosen and elected by God, and he will see my salvation through to the end. You can know you have salvation. Now, whether or not you agree with that or not, I was very intrigued. I think that's a very, there's a lot we could say about what, that was kind of his litmus test, that if you do have still, if you're hanging in there with me, through this process, through these teachings of Jesus, as we go line by line through the Gospel of Luke, then something's happened in your heart. Some, there's been some drastic change because most people don't know the biblical Jesus, think they love the Jesus, but they really don't at all. I'm going to read quickly here, David Yusick. In closing, how do we do this? What does it mean to build our house on the foundation? Well, absorption in this. Well, how do we do it? David Gusick reminds us, uh, no one can read this without seeing, talking about this sermon, seeing that they do not, excuse me, no one can read this without seeing that they have not, do not, and will never completely be able to do all this stuff. Even if we do them in a general sense, in which we should, talking about the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, the revelation of the kingdom of God in the sermons drives us back again and again as needy sinners upon our Savior. And that's true. I mean, I read these things and I just go, oh, Lord, 
I do this so imperfectly. Praying for my enemies, I barely, as I've told you before, I barely can love my family, and I do that imperfectly. Now you're talking about loving and praying for my enemies? Okay, Lord Jesus, help me. I fall upon your merciful throne, uh, your merciful altar. I fall at your feet, Lord, would you forgive me? And it drives us back. The question is, well, are we all just gonna spend all of our time repenting and and saying we'll never be able to do it? No, not at all. We, we have to practice. You know, there's athletes, especially, you know, I've, I've kind of held this mantra for a long time. Uh, when I think about my golf game, you know, I tried to play professionally for a long time and I'm still, I work on it and try to get better. And, and a lot of us kind of use this, if I can just get a little better each day, then I feel like I'm really making some progress just a little better each day. I don't want to, sometimes I may make a big step, but if I just a little bit better, just marginally, just slightly better, just slightly better, just slightly be able to increase in proficiency. Uh, I was, I came across this guy this week, James Clear, and he's, he's not a, to my knowledge, a believer. This is a, from a secular perspective. But how, he, he asked the question, how does continuous improvement, how does it even work? And if the world can get this, then I think we get a strong picture of this as well from a biblical perspective. But it, it applies to business or whatever. He says, so often we convince ourselves that change is only meaningful if there is some large visible outcome associated with it. Whether it's losing weight or building a business or traveling the world or any other goal, we often pressure ourselves to make some earth-shattering improvement that everyone will immediately begin to talk about. He says, meanwhile, improving by just 1% isn't notable and sometimes isn't even noticeable, but it can be just as meaningful, especially in the long run. And he has this little graph, this little grid about tiny gains. So if you got 1%, better at something every day for a year, then guess what? You're 37.78 times better than you were at the beginning. Now, whether or not you can apply that in the spiritual realm being 37 times better, but the point is clear. In the beginning, there is basically no difference between making a choice that is 1% better or 1% worse. In other words, it won't impact you that much every day. But as time goes on, these small improvements or declines compound and you suddenly find a very big gap between people who make slightly better decisions on a daily basis and those who don't. Here's the punchline. If you get 1% better each day for a year, you'll be 37 times better at the end of the year. So again, whether or not you buy into that, there is a real profound truth, spiritually speaking. I, I There's no way. I... I, I the Lord God, the Father, applied Jesus' righteousness to me the day I gave my life to Jesus. I was, from his perspective, I was covered in the righteousness of Christ. But in reality, a little bit better every day. A little, that's why it's so important that we come together. And I know right now it's virtually, and I, we all hate that. But we come together, encourage one another, that we're in the Word, that we're studying what Jesus taught about reality, about who we are that we're praying for one another, that we're living into our giftedness, that we're praying for our enemies, that we're absorbing blows, that we, all these things, just a little bit, just daily practice. Practice, you know, Allen Iverson, practice. You want to talk to me about practice? I mean, you non-NBA people, which is I'm sure the vast majority of you, that was a meme now that, you know, he was being interviewed and 
he wasn't concerned about it all about practice, but the Lord God is concerned about practice. In closing, 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, that's election. For as long as you practice these things, little day by day, 1%, whatever it is, just a small movement in the direction. I have a dear friend, Randy Wolf, who's on our Lynx Players uh, board and was on staff with us for a long time said each day I just want to take my little flag and just try to move it and put it a little closer to Jesus and then the next day take my flag and just plant it a little bit closer to Jesus I love that it's a beautiful picture of this daily practice he said as long as you practice these things you will never stumble what are these things well second Peter 1 5 through 9 in closing now, for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. Work on your moral self. And in your moral excellence, supply knowledge. That's hopefully what we're doing this morning. And in your knowledge, self-control. Go out and practice these things. You have an enemy right now? Go pray for him. Get on your knees right now before we're even finished. Stop, record, pause. Go get on your knees. Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And in your... Control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, just day by day, day by day, go to the gym. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of Jesus. For he who lacks these qualities, okay, we're coming full circle. You ready? Coming to the end, hang in there. If these qualities, if you, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. If you're not practicing, you're a blind guide. A blind follower of a blind guide, or a blind guide, you're blind. Why? Again, Lord, Lord, you're gonna say, they're going to say to me, why don't you practice what I'm telling you? Why don't you do what I'm telling you to do? Do you see the language? Practice this way of being a human being. This is Jesus' teaching. And you're going to be fruitful. You're not going to be a blind guide. And guess what? You're going to be built on a very, very solid foundation. So uh, anyway, that concludes the sermon on the plane. I hope, you know, go back, listen to these things, embed these things in our, in our person. Practice these things. And we, as we do, we become day by day moment by moment, conform to the very image of the creator and lover of our souls, Jesus himself. So now I'm going to turn this back over to Pastor Paul for communion. We love you, church at the Red Door. Have a glorious, glorious week and uh, can't wait to be with you next week. <music>